0: Hello and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 77. I heard our guest story at about the exact same time I launched the Equestrian Podcast in 2019, and I knew right from there that I needed to have her on the podcast. Our guest today was the most critically injured survivor of the 2016 Brussels terrorist attack and has since suffered extreme injury but has persevered to become a top dressage rider. Her story is incredible and I cannot wait for you to hear it. So without further ado, please welcome our lovely guest, Beatrice de Lavalette. I'm so happy you're on the podcast. You are someone that I've wanted on the podcast for a while because we first met when I just launched the podcast. You were speaking at the Equestrian Business Women Summit and oh my gosh, your story is incredible. So I'm like, gosh, I got to get this girl on the podcast. Let's start from the beginning, how you first got into riding and then take it away with how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, it was kind of a family thing to do. My mom rode for since she was a child and then my dad rode a little bit when he was young and then both my older brothers rode. So I me being ultra-competitive, I had to be better than they are at everything. So in their footsteps, but I'm the only one that continued into a professional level. And
0: was that dressage? What type of riding were you first introduced?
1: It's actually a sport called horseball. It's very known in Europe. They actually named it horseball so they would make it to the States, but it never did, unfortunately.
0: Wow, funny.
1: It's basically Quidditch on horses.
0: Wow. <laughs> Yeah. That's wild, and it's still played there in Europe, but I've never heard of it here. So, yeah. where are your parents from? Where did you grow up? What did that geographical dynamic look like?
1: Uh, so, my dad's half French, half American. My mom's American. Grew up in in Connecticut, but when my oldest brother was born, my dad got a job out in, in France. So, everybody moved over, and they just stayed there for about almost. 25 years. Wow. So my middle brother was born in France as well. I was born in, just outside of Paris, and recently moved back to the States.
0: Awesome. So you grew up riding, you continued to ride, and then at what point were you wanting to be more competitive with the sport?
1: I mean, competition was kind of in my blood just because of being the youngest and the only girl. Totally. But I really, I mean, I love horses more than anything. And I love the competition aspect of all of the sports that I played. But horse riding was the one where I could have like a deep connection with it. It was a family thing. And I mean, you can't have the same kind of connection with the soccer ball that you have with a
0: horse. That is true. <laughs> so yeah. did you all have horses in your family?
1: Well, we all rode in a, in a public stable. Okay. Uh, cool. And my mom owned her horse. Her first horse around 45, I think. And then I owned my first horse when I was 15.
0: Okay, awesome. So you were riding, you were competitive. At what point were you like, I think I want to have this be a big part of my life?
1: Honestly, after the accident. <laughs>
0: okay. Yeah. So uh, before yeah. the accident, it was just kind of like, yeah, this is my thing. Like I like to try to like show everyone that I'm better than my brothers. This is yeah. fun, that sort kind of thing. Okay. So then take me to what that looked like in 2015. 2015 or
1: 2016? Oh, 2016. Sorry. Yeah, I was just in high school. I was a junior, and I was going to ride my horse every day. My horse was, like, maybe two miles from my school, so I could just pop over. It was very easy right after school. And then when I was leaving for the Easter holidays to actually come here to Florida, I was standing right next to the first bomber at the Brussels airport when he detonated a bomb.
0: Wow. I mean, how big is that airport? How long had you been sitting there? What was that kind of leading up to that moment like?
1: I mean, it's not big, like, JFK or Miami but for a small country it's like the big airport it's a pretty long terminal and from what I remember I was I was laying there for a while and this is what they told me after they had to evacuate the first time and then they thought fo- they found the third bomb so they had to evacuate again have the bomb squad come in before they could have any first responders come in wow they we're all kind of laying there
0: <laughs> How much time um, how much time had gone by before someone could come to you?
1: It was a long time. I think it was about 45 minutes.
0: It probably felt like, oh my gosh. Do you remember what was going through your head at that point?
1: Actually, yeah. As <laughs> soon as I came to, I looked around and I was like, really? Like this just happened? I just was in a terrorist attack, like, okay. Great.
0: <laughs> yeah. Were you there with your family or who was there with you?
1: Oh, thank God I was alone. I okay. was alone. Yeah. From what the the police told me is they explained how explosives work basically like sound waves, but with shards and fire and fun stuff. Uh and I was standing like right at the pit of two waves. Hmm. So my suitcase that was at my feet got Destroyed, but I was spared a little bit from the full impact. Wow. Yeah.
0: Tell me a little bit about when you did come to what you experienced in that airport, what was around you. I mean, no one can imagine what you went through. And from how you explained it when we first met, it just seems like it would be so surreal.
1: Yeah, it was a little surreal. I mean, movies do it justice. It's very slow-mo. I couldn't hear it for a while. I mean, I still have the buzzing in my ear. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you really feel like you're in complete slow-mo. Yeah. There's adrenaline. You're in shock. But from what I remember, I mean, it was very dark, grayish, dusty. And I saw some fire. It's like suitcases on fire. I think I saw someone on fire running. Mm. Yeah. I think I actually met that guy after in rehab.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And then there was a a woman right next to me and I turned my head to the right and her hair was on fire. And it like took me back, took me a second and I like hit the hair like to stop it. So I have a little scar, a little burn on my
0: finger. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Once first responders were able to come help, who came to you? How was that interaction?
1: Well, unfortunately, in these situations, they basically have to tag people with colors in the sense of, like, priority. Mm -hmm. So it goes green, orange, red, and black. Okay. Green and orange are the priorities. Red is, they're not going to make it, and black is, they've already gone. Hmm. I was red. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So the woman that was right next to me got picked up, but not me.
0: Yeah. So you're just laying there tagged red and yeah. you, you can't you can't do anything you're just at the mercy of the first responders. Yeah. So how much time passed after the when the lady right next to you left?
1: I don't know. But I once I finally got the strength and I could start hearing again, I was like, I can hear people screaming for help. So I was like, oh, I should probably do that too. <laughs> so started screaming out for help in both French and English. And then kind of looked around and I saw a uh, fireman to so my left with the hose, trying to put some fires out, and I managed to like find the strength to like lift my right hand up straight, and he saw me, and I think my hair was on fire or something because he sprayed me next, <laughs> and I was like, okay, didn't really get that one.
0: <laughs> I need more but, than water. <laughs> at <this> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh. But,
1: all over people. And I remember someone saying, Oh, there's one here. And then they came and picked me up and wow me up and put me outside with everybody else.
0: And then I'm sure there was a more waiting before you know you actually were sent to a hospital and Well, once they took
1: me outside and put me down on the ground, I remember someone saying like you can't go to sleep, you can't go to sleep. Just don't close your eyes. And I remember like it's really hard. I want to go to sleep. Turns out that was just my subconscious kind of messing with me because I was awake all the way into pretty much the the VOR. But since I was in such bad shape, I was actually the first helicopter out to the military hospital.
0: Okay.
1: So I don't think I was outside for so long. Some people were out there for like an hour. Wow. Yeah. Because I mean, even I remember when arriving to the airport, we were in traffic. So having hundreds of ambulance coming, coming in at once, must have been horrible mm-hmm. and timing, but I was in such bad shape, and I mean, I was bleeding out. So mm-hmm. they put me on the first helicopter, and I went off.
0: Right at that point in time, were you recognizing what your injuries were at that point?
1: I saw that my right leg was broken. Uh, it was kind of at a right angle, mm-hmm. uh, but I didn't see any of the other injuries which is probably a good thing. So for me, that was kind of the only thing. I knew I was burned, but I, I mean, I could tell that I had holes all over. because so I wasn't able to stand up or move. I tried. Mm. So I kind of mm. went with the leg and then came out of the coma and legs are gone. And I have holes everywhere and burns. And
0: mm. yeah. at, w- at what point did your family know or put two and two together, hear the news that you were there, that you were involved in this?
1: Pretty quickly. Okay. Yeah, pretty quickly because a friend of ours who worked at the barn where where I had my horse, she would stay at the house Mm -hmm. while we were taking care of the the dogs. And so that morning, I went to her room and said goodbye. And then she went off to work. And an hour later, on the radio at at the stables, they they hear emergency announcement. So they tried to call me and no answer. And for me, not answering my phone. Was like a big deal. Yeah,
0: I, yeah.
1: Or if I couldn't, I would send a text like, I can't right now. So they they were starting to get worried. And then mm-hmm. my coach's boyfriend, husband, I can never tell what they were. <laughs> he worked, he was in charge of the duty freeze at the airport. So he mm-hmm. managed to get in through the back. But by the time he got there, I was already gone. Okay. Uh, but two of the good friends from the Sables, one of them, her husband, worked for NATO. So she had access to the military hospital. Got it. So they there first because they figured, okay, it burns. They're going to go there. And they were planning on just picking me up as I was fine, maybe a couple burns or everything. And then they wow. ended up sitting there for seven hours until the surgery was finished. And then they were, they were the ones that identified me.
0: Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so when you woke up after surgery, your family was there.
1: I was actually put into a medic induced coma
0: so how long were you in a coma for
1: almost a month
0: wow yeah,
1: yeah. when
0: you woke up what did that feel like
1: <laughs> i actually pulled the breathing tube out myself gosh which you're not supposed to do no. <laughs> and i had my hands tied down so they still have no idea how i did that wow <laughs> yeah turns out i had done that a couple times during the coma <laughs>
0: That's unreal. So I mean, a fast forward a month, you wake up, your family's there. Yeah. 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 And what are some of the thoughts that go through your head as you are waking up after this coma?
1: Apparently I said stuff that I knew what had happened, but I don't remember any of that. I was so foggy that
0: Mm -hmm.
1: it, it just wasn't connecting. So I mean, they told me and then I saw my parents. And we cried a lot. <laughs> and I didn't know about the legs until, like, 10 days after the coma or so, maybe two weeks. Yeah. So they would keep a pillow there. I could not really, like, sit up anyway. I was supposed to stay laying down for my okay. back. So the first day that they, like, took off the pillow and while, I, while they were changing my bandages, like, I could see them, I went in a full-blown panic attack. Yeah.
0: Did you remember... Any thoughts or did you remember the accident itself before or anything before the coma? Yeah. Because before that you were like, I, I broke my right leg. But like yeah. you were saying before, you hadn't really known the full extent of everything. And then obviously this shock must have been through the roof. Yeah. <laughs> So for the surgery process, what was the rundown of what they were working on during that surgery?
1: Well, the first surgery was basically patching me up. I had four military surgeons, one on each limb, basically, two on the torso, injuries from head to hips, and then the other two on the legs, trying to cement and screw everything back together. Mm -hmm. And then the top guys, they did, I had a hole in my left lung, two holes in my stomach. Shredded spleen, so they had to take that out. And then I had half of my liver was shredded, so they cut it off so that it would grow back. Hmm. And I think that's it. I was very lucky. My kidneys weren't weren't damaged miraculously the shrapnel didn't touch any of my intestines which is wow I still don't know how that didn't get touched but
0: I'm okay with it yeah yeah and so obviously the I'm sure that the initial kind of like sadness and shock was lying with the legs I mean for being such an active kid a horse rider and like you did, you were just like active in general, like keeping up yeah. with your brothers and, and having yeah. something like that. I mean, how, how was that process? What kind of help did you receive and it, both physical and mental and emotional? What did that process look like?
1: It was rough. It was definitely very rough, but I was lucky. I think I cried for about nonstop for about two weeks. Hmm. Uh, and then the humor started coming out. I have very twisted humor, very dark. And mm-hmm. we, yeah. Well, with we two were the brothers. to so kind of.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Great humor definitely helped a lot. <laughs> because sometimes it's just nice to like joke things off. So that was, that was good. And then we were, as we were planning on how many shoes, how many pairs of legs I was going to have, mm. what, that was a big yes for me. Cause I am addicted to shoes.
0: <laughs> it's really I love bad. it. I love it. I mean, as you can see from my closet, I love shoes too. <laughs> so when you were going through that process of kind of finding your new normal, what did that look like as far as your riding was concerned? Did that come into your mind pretty quickly as a reality?
1: Yeah. For sure, okay. knowing that well, I can play soccer anymore. I can run. Um, horse riding was kind of my only option, but it, it's not a bad option. <laughs> right. And I had I have such a bond with with my horse Didi that I really was never afraid of getting back up. And it took a while to like adapt to the the new normal of my riding, just because I was changing every day, basically. But with time, I mean, it, it got easier and easier.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your first interaction with your horse like after the accident?
1: My mom, my coach, and that friend that stayed at our house, they organized a little surprise where they actually brought Didi to the rehab that I was at. Wow. Yeah. So in the parking lot in the drizzle of Belgium, <laughs> she came out very happy and she's very proud. So she came out whinnying and saying, I'm here uh-huh. where is everybody and why am i parking lot and then turned her head and saw me and like locked her eyes on me and just started walking slowly towards me yeah Aww. it was it was really sweet and i started playing with my legs like why aren't they working and then just giving a bunch of kisses and hugs which Aww. was the biggest boost that's why i say that she saved my life because i was in such a bad place in the rehab that that just lifted everything
0: before we get in a word from our sponsor i want to talk about them for a little bit because i have worked with and worn tucker tweed equestrian products for a while now and i love them the quality leather is amazing and i'm always wearing their wellington wristlet and their backpack the products are stunning if you are familiar with Tucker Tweed Equestrian, then you most likely know and have seen how often they promote their retail partners. With the cancellation of a number of nationwide horse shows, many retail partners are missing out on key opportunities to see and service their clients. So, to support their partner tax stores, Tucker Tweed is encouraging you to shop tax store websites during those Miss Horse Show dates or purchase through Tucker Tweed directly, but then make sure to tag the respective tax stores in the order notes. This way, we can all support tax stores and each tax store receives credit for any purchases made. Thank you so much for that reminder, Jill Tweedy, founder of Tucker Tweed. You are amazing, Jill. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Okay, let's get back to the episode. How long were you in the rehab facility?
1: That one I was in for about I think a month and a half. Okay. And then decided I don't like this place. I'm
0: out. (laughs) Yeah. So then you went somewhere else or did you go home? I went home. Okay.
1: I was still doing outpatient there, but I I couldn't stay there anymore. It was just too depressing.
0: Sure. Yeah. So you went home. And what did life look like for you then? I mean, were you thinking about, okay, I guess I should probably start doing school again?
1: Yeah. No, school was definitely part of the process. Yeah. and I was actually begging my parents to let me go back to school while I was still in the ICU, which, for me, was kind of a big thing because I was—I'm still not a school person. But no, I, I decided to go back to school that that year and finish. Um, and when I, when I was still in the hospital, my my professors came in and and helped me finish my junior year. Wow! Yeah, that's so were, that's awesome. They were really great.
0: Tell me a little bit about your first ride after.
1: (laughs) That was an interesting one. (laughs) I bet.
0: And you were on the same horse, Dee, right?
1: Yeah. That was actually like four or five days after she came to the rehab. So it happened pretty quickly, Mm -hmm. which is nice. But we had a friend that was riding her while I was away. And so I basically got on with her with like four or five people on the sides, making sure I didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And a clip basically hugging me so I couldn't mm-hmm. fall off because I, I had no strength, no balance, nothing. Yeah. Getting bones at that point. So that was, that was an interesting first ride. And then slowly got back mm-hmm. to, well, the first, first time I got on, we actually didn't go anywhere. I just sat up there. <laughs> yeah. But slowly I was able to start walking and still with some people around just to make sure I didn't go anywhere. And then as I got stronger, it was, there were less and less people around.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was nice.
0: Yeah. And kind of fast forwarding, what does your riding look like today?
1: Like it's improved times a million. Yeah. Now I have all of the equipment that I need. Mm. I just received my new saddle from Patrick's Saddlery out in England. They completely did it custom. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's so special. I think it's another mini miracle in itself that Dee Dee was jiving with this new program. A lot of times it takes a very specific and special horse to do something like that.
1: Yeah, I know. She was like, okay, cool. You're a little different. Let's go.
0: Wow. So cool. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the equipment you have now.
1: So the new saddle, yeah, which is kind of higher in the back. So I can't lean back as much. Mm. I have a big like cushions to hold my legs in and I, my uh, boots have magnets in them well they have metal plates and then my stirrups have magnets nice so it doesn't stop me from getting thrown off which we know <laughs> yep. but it just kind of gives a little bit more stability totally and then to make sure that the legs don't kind of flap all over I figured out relatively quickly if I just put a a spur leather around the girth and then through the stirrup and just tied it, it was going to keep the leg there, which was, it's still, that's still what I do to this day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good idea because all of the equipment that you ride in needs to be approved, correct? Cool. Tell me a little bit about as you were obviously used to the dressage world, but then post-accident and getting competitive again, you were now in kind of like a new niche of the equestrian world. So tell me a little bit about some things, some differences you experience now being a pair dressage rider.
1: Well, to be very honest, I had never heard of this world before.
0: Hmm.
1: Never. How did Uh, you get
0: introduced to it?
1: Well, after the accident, I I knew I wanted to continue sports even in a wheelchair, research. And then when I came out to the Florida for the first time, like, uh, like six months later, I met Becca Hart, who's mm. been on the team for four Olympics, I think. Wow. Something like that. I think Tokyo may have been her fourth, would have been her fourth. And she kind of took me under her wing and introduced me to everybody and to, nice. to this land at all, which was very helpful. Uh, so now I kind of try to do that for other people as well.
0: Mm, that's really cool.
1: It, it's a hard world to get adapted to, if you, especially if you've been in the regular dressage world before. I mean, it's the same sport, same competitions, but completely different levels. Mm. It, it takes a while to get used to it, but it's always easier when you have someone walking you through it and helping you.
0: Totally. Did you have a trainer or coaching switch after, or did you work with the same people?
1: Once I moved to the States, I got a new trainer.
0: Got it. Yeah. And tell me a little bit, because I know on your Instagram bio, you had one of your big goals of being a 2020 Tokyo Olympic rider, which obviously, as we all know, is not happening in 2020. However, tell me a little bit about that process, because obviously this would have been something that you would have been preparing for it for years. So tell me a little bit about what went in to that. And at what point were you thinking like, you know what? I'm ready. I've been competing and I think that I can do this. I think there's a chance.
1: Well, my first year of competition, I stayed on DD just because it, it was my first year and I was getting introduced to the competition world, the international competition world. But after that, I was told that I needed to horse up. <laughs> it was time. So it was time to get new, new horses. More of what the judges were looking for, so big warm bloods, sure, so we went and got warm bloods <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so Shana went to to Europe to Germany and Holland, and came back with two huge and amazing horses
0: <laughs> awesome <Yep. laughs> and those are those are two that you ride still to this day yeah okay. so
1: and Skye, who was recently introduced.
0: Yeah. So cool. So tell me a little bit about once you got those horses and started kind of getting acclimated to them and to your program to the point where you were, I I guess, until today, until recently when just before Olympic talk was postponed, but that whole process of qualifying and whatnot.
1: So actually, we went to try on with Duna six weeks after getting her
0: how was that
1: (laughs) that was uh interesting (laughs) definitely interesting but it actually it went really well so it showed me that with these big horses and knowing how to ride them and learning how to ride them I could get these really good results and I won two out of the three days I think
0: nice
1: that first week so I was pretty, pretty cool with that one.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say so. That's amazing. So then you were riding in what horse shows after that point?
1: So I've, I was still living in California, so we did the the local shows in Del Mar. So we did just so like the Halloween shows and just the, the fun little shows around there and the schooling show.
0: Okay, cool. And then for the Olympics, what were the qualifier shows looking like?
1: They were tough. <laughs> Uh, there were so the two that are in January here. So that was interesting. How did uh, those go for you? Well, very well. And I'm still learning new things about the horses and how mm-hmm. to ride them. Sure. So every day was a little different. And I learned what not to do, what to do. So, I mean, even today, like I'm still learning some things.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> I've never had warm bloods before. So... <laughs> It was that so these two, and then we were supposed to have I was supposed to be in Europe right now competing with Duna, okay, I was supposed to do the show in Weingham in okay. Belgium, Deauville in France, and come straight back to try on and do the qual- the last qualifier show, okay, dune
0: well, all of that got cancelled, yes, <laughs> how do you wrap your head around it? emotionally and just and and physically for you and your horses with how much work and time and effort you put into this plan it looked like it was going to be successful for you like it looked like you were going to be able to go to the olympics and then oh well maybe next year i mean Uh, what went through your head with that
1: i was very angry yeah (laughs) yeah yeah I still have some resentment to this day since they postponed it, but I also know that it's gonna give me more time to get prepared yeah. and better chance of meddling. So after I realized that, it got better. Yeah. I was like, I can I'm staying in Florida anyway, so the horses will get used to the to the weather even more. So it was Yeah. It was sad happy at the same time.
0: Right. I mean, at least we're, it's, it's something that everyone is in together and, you know, everyone has this new schedule. I mean, let's say come fall, we can start kind of resuming normal activities and showing, and we're back in the full swing of things. What will this next winter, spring leading up until next summer, do you have a plan for what that will look like now?
1: Probably the same as what I had planned for this year.
0: Yeah. 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 Did you give your horses a little bit of time off when you heard the news or what, yeah. what did that look like in their training?
1: Yeah, we got, we just moved to a new barn. So it also gave us time to let the horses get acclimated to the new barn. Sure. It's calmer, but it's also bigger. So they have more space. And nice. So they've been, we've, we've gone easy on them. And then my, my coach, Shana, she's been riding them a lot. I had a little issue, health issue, a couple weeks ago, so I've been taking some time off.
0: Okay, got it.
1: But I've still been going to the barn every day. I always complained that I couldn't help doing stuff, especially a, at the old barn. It wasn't accessible for me, so I couldn't go and do the feed and all that. Mm. Now I have my own feed room. It's flat, and I'm the feed lady. My parents very nicely got me um, an ATV with a special drag that it, for for DGT. Nice. Um, so I'm the one that does the drag which is actually really fun <laughs> uh,
0: yeah it kind of yeah. helps your like OCD the like straight perfect lines oh
1: yeah yeah no, uh, once my I get my feed room a little more, more cleaned up I'm gonna get some footage of in there oh, it's, yeah. it's pretty OCD like I always have I've always had OCD but right now like it's
0: whew. love it
1: <laughs> yeah, but it's hard
0: I totally, to, like, I am the same way. That is so funny. What would be an area of the equestrian industry that you're particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about?
1: I don't know. I'm still kind of new, actually, to the industry. <laughs> I rode my whole life, but I, I never got into, like, the business of it or owning a barn or, like, the professional aspect of it. <clears throat> So I'm still getting kind of used to all of that. And like the sponsorships, being an ambassador to companies. Right. So kind of working through all of that and trying to figure it out. That's been, I think, probably the hardest for me, but I'm sure it's hard for other people. So I'm trying to learn more about it so that I can help people in the future. Mm
0: -hmm. Being a young professional myself, there's not necessarily like a cut and dry route. It's like you just kind of have to like figure it out or try to find someone to mentor you or help you through it or navigate you through it. But yeah, it can be a little dicey.
1: Yeah, it can be a little messy sometimes if you don't know what you're doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, B, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Your story is amazing and I am so happy to know you, so proud of you, and so excited to see what this next year brings.
1: Thank you so much.